Hey, glad that you're here today. Um, we're going to talk about how to be rich. And no, this is not a name it, claim it sermon. And the main idea of this talk comes from the verses that uh, Nikki just read. I'm going to read them again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, I just want to say a disclaimer that uh, this is not the giving tithing talk. Uh, I'm not interested in your dollars for the church today. Next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I just want you to hear that. I just like, want to set the expectation right for today. The expectation is that there's something in our hearts that God wants to do that invites us, that he invites us to do and to be. And that's really what I'm after. Yes, that impacts what you give to this organization and other organizations. But that what you give to Pax City or what you give to Christian organizations in general, that's a byproduct of what I'm going to talk about today. So I just want to set that expectation with you. Are, are we clear on that? Are we clear that I am not? Okay, good. So anyway, Jesus followers, according to this, are commanded to be rich to be generous and be willing to share. And so today, when we look at the scriptures, we're going to look at a different set of scriptures from somebody special, James, the brother of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, has something to say to rich people. And here's what he says in James 5, verse 1. He says, now listen, you rich people. And at this point... This is where some of us who are not rich, we start to tune out. We go, well, I'm not rich, so I guess I don't have to listen to this. This is not for me. And I'm going to look around to see who is paying attention because maybe I need to be their friend because they're rich. And maybe this is the difficult truth for some of you to hear today. The difficult truth is that many of us are richer than we think we are. And the reason we don't think we're rich is because we don't feel rich. And no matter how much money we make, how much money comes in, how much money stacks up, we don't feel rich. Let me tell you a story. Um, my first job was stacking produce at S&R Produce. The S stood for Sam and the R stood for Rick. And Sam and Rick owned a produce shop and I used to stack produce. And I was very young. I was maybe 14-ish. And I would stack it up very badly. I, I, I was, I mean, how, I, mean just, I would stack fruit on the weekends. And I remember I got my first paycheck. And that was the first and last time that I ever felt rich. And maybe you feel that way. <laughs> that was it. I was like, man, what am I going to do with all this money? That was the first time and that was the last time that I ever felt rich. And the truth is, is that we don't feel rich for a number of reasons. First, some of you, you have no financial margin. You have no financial margin. And if you have no financial margin, you have no financial peace. And if you have no financial peace, you don't feel rich. In fact, some of you are making more money than you've ever made in your whole life, and you still feel financial pressure, the type of pressure that would not make sense to many people around the world. And the other reason sometimes you don't feel rich is that we don't recognize we're rich because we know what everybody else has, right? 
We know what everybody else drives. We know what kind of homes they have. We know the pictures that they put up on their Instagram account with the food and the thing, and they just got their manicure and all the things. Or uh, everyone looks better than us. They dress better than us. Uh, their kids look better and dress better than us. And, and you look at the people on Instagram or Twitter, maybe you got your blue check mark this week. You look at Twitter and Instagram and you go, man, why can't I dress like that? Why can't I buy things like that? Why can't I go? How does that person even go on those vacations? And without meaning to, we fall into something called the comparison trap. And here's the reality. You won't feel this and there's no way to make you feel this. And in fact, I'm not even sure if it's important that you feel this, but the reality, the starting point, this fact that we have to think about and what we need to do with what, we, with what we've been given is this. By international standards, according to a statistic supplied by the World Bank, if you have a household income of $50,000, you are in the 1% club. And whenever I mention that, no one, <laughs> whenever I mention that, I don't, there's not a rousing you know, round of applause. We're not like, yes, we are here in the 1% club. Nobody ever cheers. Oh, sweetheart, look, we've made it. We're in the 1%. No one feels it because you don't feel it. And here's the implications of this. The goal of what I'm trying to say isn't to make you feel guilty. Do you hear me? I don't want you to feel guilty. Why would anyone want to feel guilty at church? They're not meant to feel guilty. What I'm trying to tell you is that it's meant to help you feel responsible. Responsible. And there are millions of people around the world who think that you and I are filthy rich. Now back to James. There's an assumption in the first century when James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this, that among the people that rich people were the favored people by God. Rich people were favored by God, and that's why they're rich. And sick people, not so much. Poor people, definitely not. God doesn't care about those people as much. And people thought that rich people were more loved by God. And when Jesus came to earth, he set the record straight. He said, rich people aren't more loved. Rich people are more responsible which we just learned from the World Bank, is you and I. You and I aren't more loved. You and I get to be more responsible. Rich people are more accountable. Rich people actually are expected to do more, to give more, to be more, because they have been given more opportunity. And so James says this. We're only in verse 1 still. In James chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now listen here, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. <laughs> uh, and this was a shocker. He's saying, rich people, your future is not as secure as you think it is. And we're all thinking, wait a minute, that's not true. Rich people have the most secure future. That's why rich people don't worry about anything, right? Rich people are never worried, right? Rich people never worry about money and resources and all that. And, but James was different. James was a different breed because James was smart and James knew that the more you have, the more you tend to worry. Is that not true? Because rich people often make the terrible mistake, the mistake that most of us make, which is, uh, and in fact, if you've made this mistake, it might actually mean you're rich. Rich people have a tendency to put their trust in their wealth rather than in the one who richly provided it for them. 
And this is something that poor people never do. Poor people never put their trust in their wealth because they don't have any money. <laughs> they don't have any resources. But as soon as you begin to accumulate, as soon as I begin to accumulate, as soon as we begin to get things and we begin without meaning to, our trust can migrate from our Heavenly Father who provides all the good things onto the stuff that he's provided for us. And this is why it's so strange that some people you know, they have more resources than they've ever had in their entire life, and they're worried about it more than they've ever been worried about it in the past. And it's as if no matter how much you have, it's never enough because it never is enough. There's an endless sense of what ifs. What if the stock market? What if I lose this job? What if somebody gets sick? What if there's an accident? What if my husband or my wife leaves me? What if, what if, what if, what if? And consequently, without meaning to, our trust can migrate from our Heavenly Father onto our stuff. We begin to chase after the blessing versus the blesser. And statistics prove this. Now, I'm not going to go through them all because I don't want to. I just looked at the clock when I said that. But if you look at the statistics, the more you accumulate in America, the more your hands grasp around it, the more you hold on to it. And I know you and I are different, but everybody else in this country, the more you get, the more you have, the quicker our hands close around it. So James keeps going. He says this in verse 2. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Listen, you have so many clothes that you have moths in them. Your gold and silver that you've been accumulating, you don't even know what to do with it. And so it's starting to erode. It's actually starting to depreciate. Your investments are depreciating because you have so much. And James' point is simply this, that you've held on to so much for yourself that it's not good for anything to anybody. Maybe you've had an experience like this. I can point to it. It is our coffee table in our apartment. Uh, if you open it up, you will find an iPhone that doesn't work. How long has it been there? Centuries. It's been there forever. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll sell it. Maybe I'll reuse it. Maybe I'll give it to someone in need. And, I, and maybe, maybe I still will. But the f fact is, is I have it. And I won't. And you have that drawer too that has all that junk. You're like, maybe I'll need it. Maybe I'll, I'll even keep the box. Listen, every millennial keeps their iPhone box, but they never do anything with it. I know all of you have one somewhere, hiding somewhere. But I did that thing. I do that thing. Maybe I might need this someday. Maybe I might use this someday. Maybe I'll give it to someone. And James points out that that's no good for anybody. Not good for anything to anybody anymore. Because the issue is not how much comes in. The issue is how much stacks up. And James, like a prosecuting attorney, he leans into his audience. And he says, their corrosion will testify against you. The decay of all this stuff, the things we accumulate, the things that we hoard, you think you're doing a good thing by hoarding, but actually you're doing a bad thing by hoarding. And people one day are going to look at you. This is James. I'm not talking to you. James is talking to his audience and he's saying, look, people are going to look at you and see that you've hoarded all this stuff. And they're not going to think good things about you. They're actually going to think negative things about you. And James gets really brutal right here. I'm warning you. He gets really brutal and he leans into the culture. And he says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Whew. Now, um, 
Amen, right? No. I mean, this is common judgment of God language that we find in the scriptures, in the New and the Old Testament. In the ancient times, people were judged publicly, and, they were, and people were often punished publicly, and they were often punished violently. And people had a tendency to judge what happened on earth as it related to punishment of what God would do. And James was saying that God would punish them for the way they had mishandled their stuff, which ultimately God had provided for them. And James assumes that there's going to be an accountability moment for everybody who's ever been given anything. And why would he think that? Why would James think that one day people who are rich are going to be accountable for that? Why would he think that? Now, I know some of you aren't sure what you believe about God, the whole idea of judgment, and maybe you're smarter than all that, and I get, I get that. But James believed that God was involved in the details of our lives. And James believed in an afterlife. And James believed that we were accountable or that we are accountable for how we live our life because of one simple thing. James believed we're accountable because of one simple thing. It wasn't because of what he was taught. It wasn't because of what he read. But because of one simple incident in James's life. James, he watched his brother Jesus get crucified. He knew where his brother Jesus was buried. And then three days later, he had a conversation with his brother. He rose from the dead. And when you have a conversation with someone who was dead for like days and came back to life, your thoughts on eternal life start to change. Your opinion of the afterlife begins to shift. And so James, at the middle of his life, begins to believe that Jesus was not just his half-brother, but that Jesus was God. And he started to change everything around him. And ultimately, James was stoned. He was killed. He was put to death because he refused to admit or change his mind about seeing his brother raised from the dead. He continued to say that his brother wasn't just his brother, but that Jesus was his Lord. And he was the Messiah, and that he rose from the dead. And James, who had a conversation with his living brother, tells us that there's an afterlife. And James, the brother of Jesus, who watched his brother rise from the dead, he says, listen, we're going to be accountable for what we do with our stuff. Now, in case you missed it, uh, and James, for some reason, thinks that people are missing his point still, he gets even more into it, straight up. He says this, he says, their corrosion will testify you against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded your wealth in the last days. And the implication is this, why hoard your stuff when the time is short? Now, this is a really interesting question for you. And this is a really interesting question, obviously, for me too. And maybe you're a religious person, maybe you're not, but regardless, it's all something that we should wrestle with why we should hoard, why should we hoard and act like we're going to live forever? Because we're not. And here's what we all know. You are going to run out of time before you run out of stuff. And many of you are probably going to run out of time before you run out of money. Okay? Let me talk about it this way. Have you ever had to go clean out a relative's house who's downsizing? Maybe they're moving into a, a nursing home. Assisted living, we call it now. Okay, cool, cool. 
uh, or maybe you had a relative or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandfather that eventually passed away. Uh, um, have you ever had the responsibility of going into their house and trying to figure out what to do with all their stuff? And you're like, what, are they, what were they going to do with all this stuff? My grandmother passed away a couple years ago, and she had some stuff, boy. And, uh, man, I, I love her and miss her, and, uh, but she had some stuff that, like, outlasted her. And what we discover in this is what we do now determines the story that people will tell about us when we're gone. And what, this is what James is leaning into here. He's kind of saying to them, come on, guys. Wealthy people, you've hoarded your stuff and you've held on to it for so long. It's actually losing value. I thought you were a smart, wealthy person. I thought you were about increasing your value. You're not increasing your value. You're losing value here. You're losing value so much that this is going to like kind of indict you in a certain way when you're gone. So James, thinking that he's losing our attention, he says this. He says, look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers... Uh, because most of these people that he was addressing were either merchants or wealthy landowners. He says, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Now, wealthy landowners at this time were often criticized for abusing their power. Now, in this country, there's often uh, legal recourse. And now that there's social media, there's shame recourse that you can take. Uh, if you want to take to the streets. Uh, but at this time, a landowner or a merchant could say, hey, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money if you do this work, but then he, could, he or she could come back and change that amount or not pay you at all or say you didn't do the work. So there's no legal recourse for people who were poor or people who were of the working class. And uh, so the wealthy, apparently, were constantly leveraging their power and their influence to the detriment of people without power. And he says that the cries of the people without power are crying out against you. And this should worry us a little bit. If you're a business owner, if you're a merchant, <laughs> if you're um, in management or you're at an executive level in your organization, uh, maybe you're like, oh, I'm an independent contractor. Well, you know, sorry, just listen anyway. Maybe you are an owner, maybe you manage employees of some kind, and you are the kind of person that's always looking for loopholes. You're in the habit of looking for loopholes and not paying people or giving people what you said you would give them. This is a message to you. You're not doing what you said you were going to do. And this is what he says. He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. These people have been taken legal advantage of it wasn't illegal for them to do it. They took legal advantage of them, but the Lord heard their cries. And this is, what, this is what we learned from this. Resource people shouldn't look for loopholes by, uh, to get by do, with doing less. Resource people, especially Jesus followers, resource people should look for opportunities to do more, to give more, to be more generous. Now, if there, all there is to this life is this life. If all there is to this life is you make a few bucks, get some new cars, maybe buy a really cool TV, then like you don't really have to listen to what I'm saying. Because you're going to die and it's all going to be over and it's not going to matter. But and if your life 
in, if this life is all we have, then you're justified in saying, I don't owe anything to anybody. I get that. But if there's more to this life. And of course, James, the brother of Jesus, believed that there was more to this life because he had a, a conversation with his brother three days after he had died. He would say, of course I believe there's an afterlife. I saw him killed and came back to life. If there's more to this life, then we are to be commended for working hard. And I know some of you, personally, you are hard workers. You are to be commended because you have saved your money. You're to be commended because you've chosen to be responsible over the years. That's really good. I'm proud of you. I'm not sure if your parents tell you they're proud of you of what you've done, but I, I'm here to tell you today I'm proud of you. And I know, for me personally, um, Nikki and I, we have more money than we've ever thought we would have. And it's not like we're rich, uh, but we're, we're doing all right. And we don't even have that much. And part of why I think we've done so well is we've never set any financial goals. And the thing is, is if you don't set goals, you'll always be surprised about how much money you have. <laughs> and, and Nikki and I, I mean, we're so grateful for everything that we've been given. We have more than we thought we ever have. And if you've been to our apartment, it's not like we're rich. It is rent control. And we're grateful for this. But the money that we have didn't fall out of the sky. I, didn't certainly, I certainly didn't scoop it out of this offering bucket. And, but back when other people were frittering away, they were living on margin, uh, they were uh, you know, overextending themselves with credit cards, we tried to work hard and save our money. We tried to invest in good things in, in real estate when we were living in different places. But I went to read the Bible. Uh, you know, I, I, I see it. I am commended for working hard. That's great. And so are you, Nikki. We were both commended for working hard. And we're commended for being a good steward with our time and our talent and our treasure. Uh, and we did it in a way where we said, God brought this to us, and we're going to do what we can to steward it. So we're to be commended for working hard, but we're also commanded to be generous. I'm commanded to be above average generous. I am commanded to give more and to be more and to serve more. Even if I earned it all, I am still responsible for what God has given me in light of all that he has done, which is every single gift. He's given me every single gift. He put me in the family that I'm in. He put Nikki in the family that she was in. He put us in America, uh, the richest country in the world for now. And he gave us opportunities that we were able to take advantage of. And at the end of the day, no matter what we've accomplished or what we've earned, we are still accountable to our Father in heaven. Why? Because at the end of our life, we believe we're going to leave it all. It's going to be left here. How much of what will be left here? How much will be left here? 100% of it. And one day, someone else is going to have our stuff, which means it's not actually our stuff. So James, he's not done. We're only at verse 5. He says, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He says, you've become greedy. You've become a victim of the consumption assumption. Ever heard of this? The consumption assumption? The consumption assumption is this. If it comes to me, it must be for me. 
If it comes to me, it must be for me. If it comes to me, it must belong to me. And I can do whatever I want with it. And James says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's maybe how it works out there in that version of the real world. But that's not how it works in God's economy. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. Just because it came to you may not mean it's actually for you. And this next part will probably go right over your heads. And it's not meant to mean a thing to you. And it's not going to elicit any emotion out of you. But when James wrote this and sent this letter to the people that he wrote it to, and they read this out loud, what he did was a showstopper. It stopped everything in its tracks in that moment. And he doesn't want them to miss it. The gravity and the importance of the words that he was trying to tell them. And he says, little did you know, the truth is this. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Day of slaughter. And we're all like, what does that mean? I don't know. What does day of slaughter mean? Well, listen. It shouldn't mean anything to you, so let me explain it to you. In this day and age, rich people would pick out cattle. They would take calf, a calf and they would put it in a pen and they would feed it and raise it and keep it safe. And they would protect it and guard it because eventually they were going to have something that they needed to celebrate. And when you and I, when we want to celebrate, we have Thanksgiving coming up and uh, you're at a Christian church. I'm assuming some of you will celebrate Christmas. Uh, and uh, you go, you have something to celebrate. What do you do? You go to the market and you pick out a turkey, which is, I, 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 for the people that love turkey, I don't get it. But maybe you'll pick out a turkey or you'll pick out a Christmas ham or you'll do what we do. We do Thanksgiving. Uh, we celebrate the pilgrims with steak. And uh, <laughs> we pick out the fattened calf. And... Uh, and, and, and this is going to happen to you. As you get closer to celebrating Christmas, you're just going to go online, maybe order yourself a turkey or something. And uh, you can go to the grocery store. But unlike you and I, they couldn't do this. They had to raise their meat, get to know their meat. Name, they had to name their meat. And back then, the only thing that really kept was grain and wine. And if you were rich enough, you could have a little cattle, so you could have a little protein, a little meat. And consequently, they had to think way ahead for their celebrations, like a year in advance. They had to think ahead in order to accomplish having some meat at their dinner party. And the interesting thing that James is doing with this illustration is as if he's saying, listen, you rich people, you think you're so smart, you think you're planning way ahead, you think you're planning for your your future, but really, here's what you're doing. You're planning for your own embarrassment. You're fattening up your calf thinking that you're going to have something to celebrate and you're going to slaughter it and eat that calf because something good has happened. And he looks at them and he's saying, you have actually fattened up yourself for the slaughter. You think that you've accumulated and hoarded and it's going to be a celebration. But in the end, it will be to your own embarrassment. And when this was read out loud to rich people, They were shocked. Now, here's what we know from church history. That James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred, which means he was stoned to death for his beliefs in about the year 62. This is 2022. This was 62. And he was stoned illegally by the high priest. 
And there was this transition of governor leadership. And in between that transition of the, uh, this transition of power, the high priest took it upon himself to get rid of this pain in the neck, and his name was James. And James, the brother of Jesus, because he wouldn't shut up about his risen brother, they organized it, and he was martyred in 62. It's not actually recorded in the Bible. It's actually recorded by another historian named Josephus. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you've read him. And Josephus was a Jewish historian. He actually records uh, how James was killed. But here's something that's fascinating. Seven years later, after James was martyred, after James said, You've, he says, you, were, you are fattening yourself up for your own slaughter, James is martyred in 62. Seven years after that, all the rich people, all the rich people in the area, they found themselves trapped in Jerusalem with all their stuff, and they were surrounded by the Roman army. And eventually, the Roman army surrounded them, and all these rich people starved. And they died by their own hands, there was infighting, and they died of disease. Many of them were murdered in the city while being surrounded by Romans by their own people because there was mob conflict taking place within the city. Or they were enslaved. And eventually, every single one of them was expelled one way or the other. And get this. Get this. All the rich people that James was talking to, all of their wealth got put in carts, and it was sent to Rome. And they didn't have it anymore. Those with the most to lose, lose the most. Now, did James know this was going to happen? I don't know. Jesus predicted it. Jesus predicted that this event was going to happen, but he didn't give a date when he predicted it. And I don't even know if James historically understood the circumstances of how it would happen. But what James understood, what James knew ultimately, is what happened to them is a thing that could happen to each of us. One day, our lives will be over. And what we did with our stuff will say as much about us as anything else. And so the moral of the story the moral of the story is that you got to give while the giving's good. And what I cling to now may be a source of embarrassment later. Now, some of you are Christians. Some of you don't know what you believe. Some of you are exploring faith. And most of you are thinking, good God, how much longer is this? It's almost done. And here's the thing. One day, I believe that you will have to give an account and you will have to figure out what you're going to do with what James said. But in the meantime, as a church, we're inviting you to take action. And I begin with the words of Timothy, and if you want, you can put them on the screen. And it talks about how we're to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and be willing to share with all. And this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, is a great opportunity for you and me to just take inventory. To take inventory and say, God, how do you want me to respond to your generosity? Obviously, we've, I just, we just rolled out the partnership with uh, uh, Claris, and we're going to uh, adopt those five families. And if you make a gift, that's great. And obviously, it's important for you to give to the church. And uh, this isn't a tithing sermon, so I don't want to do that. But more importantly, like I began, there is an issue of the heart. 
It's an issue of the heart and how you're going to view yourself and how you're going to view the resources and the wealth that you have. And as a Christian, extravagant, over-the-top generosity, it's appropriate. It is the perfect response in light of God's gift to us, his generosity to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity to grow in your personal generosity. It's going to make a huge difference. So let's give, let's serve, let's love, let's be more than sermons and songs, and let's be rich together. Over the coming weeks, um, we're going to dive into different aspects of this. This is the most uh, uh, d- direct sermon that we have in the series. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, gratitude and how uh, gratitude is very important going into Thanksgiving, obviously, because, you know, all the things. But um, unexpressed gratitude is often understood as ingratitude. And so how are we going to be rich with love and good deeds and with our words to those who have made an impact in our lives? That's what we're going to focus on next week. I hope to see you there. And then uh, uh, St. Patrick, the great one, will be rounding out our series in, at, the end of, uh, at the end of November. So uh, we hope that you can be with us. And so let's grow together and be rich together. Why don't we all stand? We're going to worship one more time together. Um, before we do, I... Um, One thing that we like to do is we like to talk and sing, but at the same time, we want to pay attention to other things that God might be uh, doing with us. And so I'm going to pray, and this is a different kind of prayer. Sometimes our prayers are like shooting up our requests to God. Sometimes our prayers are listening prayers where we make space for God to speak to us. So as the band is tuning and warming up, and we're just going to wait on the Lord and say, God, I ask that you would speak to us now. And I'm going to pray that right now for us. So if you feel comfortable, you can open your hands. This is just an outward posture of an inward um, desire that, God, you would speak to us. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you to be with us. We know that you're already here, but increase our awareness of your presence. I ask, God, that you would speak to us.